Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Spring Podcast. It's a little bit of a special episode this week, um, a small uh, diversion from our from our usual episodes covering a round of the 2001 WRC each week. This week we're, we're lucky enough to have Neil Weirden and Trevor Agnew on to have a chat with us. Um, as we've mentioned in, in previous podcasts, uh, these were two guys that were competing at the top level of the sport during the 2001 season. Uh, they were in a Grafoni run 206 and they competed in five rounds and um, had had some decent showings within those rounds. So um, Trevor reached out to us a, a short while ago and you know just just uh, offered to to come on and 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 give his give his I suppose experience of the year with with Neil as well. So we're extremely grateful to those guys for for giving up their time to come on and chat to us. Just some fascinating tales in store. So does uh, does about an hour and a half uh, in, in total from both the 2001 season and their careers in general so have a listen hope you enjoy it uh, we really enjoy talking to the two guys um, so um, hopefully you find it as, as interesting as we did normal service will be resumed next week we'll be covering the, the round in New Zealand next week um, so until then uh, enjoy this episode and we'll talk to you then We're privileged to have Neil Weirden and Trevor Agnew uh, with us this week for uh, a special guest appearance. Um, just for a little bit of background for, for both of those guys, uh, in case you weren't aware. Uh, Neil uh, is an ex-factory BRC driver um, back from the period when it was at arguably one of its most competitive times. Um, he was a, a works driver for Vauxhall in the Astra kick car back in the F2 times, um, which, as, as many of you will, will remember, uh, they were just spectacular cars and and just a, a brilliant period for the sport and uh trevor is um, a very accomplished co-driver and actually a, an ex-production uh, world champion believe it or not uh, with martin rowan 2003 so um welcome along guys thanks very much for for coming along thanks yeah, for thank having you. us thank you privileged yeah. no um so i suppose just to tie you into to what we're doing with 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 the the podcast this series of the podcast for the 2001 season um it's uh Neil and Trevor were actually competing um as we've mentioned in, in, in a few episodes where they've they've cropped up on entry lists and stuff already in a Grafoni run uh Puget 206 WRC. So these were guys uh from the UK that were on the up and up at the time and they'd had some some great years going leading up to this and they they'd made the jump to the the, the top level of the sport um competing against the best of the best. So uh, as I said, we're we're very uh, excited and privileged to to have the guys on. So, um, guys, if you want to just give a bit a, a brief summary summary of I suppose the road to 2001 and and how you ended up um, getting to this level. Yeah, uh, well, my rallying career started in '91 in a, a Mark II Escort uh, as a young 19 year old. Uh, I was always interested in the sport right from being a, a toddler. Always watched events. Always watched the uh, well. It was the um, RAC rally, Lombard RAC rally when I used to watch it. Uh, and then obviously my passion was, was rallying, watching events, uh, then servicing on events. So I was 15, 14, 15 year old as a, as a young lad leaving school for a few days to go and help on uh, events in the BRC actually with a local driver. So I used to take time out of school and go and do that. So I was always destined to do something in the, in the sport. 
bought a, bought a car, bought a Mark II Escort, and then um, slowly worked my way up at the ranks. And I was soon noticed by quite a few people in that car to to, to think that I was capable of uh, of going further in the sport. And obviously, that that I grew in confidence from things like that. Um, but my main break came in 1995 uh, when I decided to enter the BRC in a Peugeot 306 in a one make challenge. Um, ended up winning that for that year. Uh, and then there was ups and downs for the next few years, but it basically culminated in, uh, in, a, in a factory drive with, with Vauxhall. We had some good years with Asquith Autosport before that in the Honda Civic. Had some real good trips to Ireland, actually, um, doing the Irish Tarmac Championship. Some some great, great events, Circuit of Ireland and Donegal in that Astra, uh, sorry, in that uh, Civic. Um, and then that all culminated, like I said, in the Astra kit car, the um, Formula 2 kit car. We had three or four manufacturers actually asking us if we'd like to join them. Uh, and it was a big time for Trevor and I, uh, deciding which way to go. Uh, we chose Vauxhall for a number of reasons, mainly um, the amount of WRC events they were they were uh, offering in part of the contract. Um, and we had we had a fir- we had a, a good year, first year, a good a steady first half of the first year in '99 with Astra uh, with the with the Vauxhall, uh, and we just got quicker and quicker as the year got on, uh, learning the car. Uh, we got a new car for the second half of the year uh, and we won first time out the Ulster Rally in 99 with that car uh, which was a, a fantastic way to debut that that, that new uh, that new car and from then on I went from strength to strength really boosted my confidence uh, our, our confidence and um, the year after we got a new teammate Mark Higgins uh, and we were trading times all the time with Mark who was very experienced at the time and uh, and we basically we should have won the championship in that year. There's no doubt about it. We had some cruel luck uh, many many times throughout the year. We were leading most events at some point, um, but it just wasn't to be. Fate dealt many blows that that year. Uh, but we always had a bigger picture, and um, that bigger picture was 2001 and moving on to the WRC, which obviously uh, is why we're here to talk about it. But that's a brief quick rundown of of how we got to 2001 really from my point yeah so i started uh, doing navigation rallies in county armagh where i grew up in 1979 I was 14 years of age the first rally was in a wartburg night three cylinder two stroke uh, and that was various mark one mark two escorts avengers sunbeams all that usual stuff uh, right up until I went backpacking when I was 21 or so. And I was addicted, like you guys, really keen on the sport, loved it, addicted to rallying, but never thought I could do it professionally. It never even entered my head. So I actually went to Australia. I managed to do a rally there and come back and start off doing a few more. Met up with Robin Phillips. Uh, I don't know how that happened. In 1988, we did the Circuit of Ireland and a few other rallies. He was a member of the junior team the year before, uh, the Volkswagen junior team. So we did the circuit in his golf. Um, and then from then, uh, I went backpacking again for two and a half years, come back, did some more rallies with Robin. Got asked to do the British Championship in 1986 by Robin. And it was during that year then that I started to meet people like Neil and Asquith team. David Higgins then asked me to do Donegal, which I did. I did some work with Asquith then that year. And towards the end of that year, uh, they decided to put Neil and I together because they'd been watching Neil and his progress 
Uh, he hadn't such a good year in 96. He had a few accidents as a works Peugeot driver. But they saw the potential in him. Uh, they got well, David Senior co-drove Neil in the Cambrian rally. Just It was a confidence booster, really, for Neil. He just thought he'd get someone in to, to just assess him, make sure he wasn't going mad. Uh, so there's lots of... Uh, confidence in that and they decided that they put the two of us together and put us in the Civic. Of course Asquith had a huge amount of success for Robbie Head, Mark Higgins, David Higgins at that point. So getting in that seat which is a professional team with uh, with a minimum budget but you know they, they taught us so much. Incredible what we learned uh, in the two years that we were with them in 1997-98. And, uh, and as Neil said we, uh, we had four offers for F2 teams at the end of 98 uh, and we chose Vauxhall and then that brought us into 2001 and again we'll, we'll talk about how all that developed. Excellent, excellent. I believe actually Trevor, I think I saw a picture of you that Stephen Prevost took um, from the 84 Wallonie was it? Is that is that correct? Yeah, that was, that was my first uh, Rally in Belgium, age 19, with Willie Sington, the Group 4 Escort. That, that car was actually a, it was a Ford car. It was built for Billy Coleman, actually. Uh, so it was a proper machine. And uh, funny, I was just chatting to Patrick Snares back and forward yesterday because uh, we, well, I dropped the names, I just wanted to know if it was Stefan Prevo that actually took the photographs. That's why I messaged him. And it was. And uh, the photographer, actually, uh, the, sorry, the guy who looks after his photographs came back to me. So... Yeah, it's good to have that. He sent me another photograph as well, which uh, I'll have to get up at some point. Whoa. But yeah, that that was that was exciting times back then. Excellent, excellent. Um, like a pretty pretty meteoric rise, really. You know, in the latter part of the nineties, there for for both of you, um, to to get from you know, the privateer side of it or amateur side of it into into full factory seats. Um, I guess, you know. To heading into the 2001 season then obviously things had, had um, come to uh, a close of Vauxhall but you were obviously looking to make the next step um, in any case and the so you mentioned the, the slipstream um, element there earlier on can you just tell us a little bit about that and, and that approach because it, it was quite novel at the time and, and, and new yeah well it, it was one of those things and I think if you look back at the history of sort of 95 onwards or 94 onwards, there's this um, feeling that there's a lot of the British expected to get into the championship. And when I moved to England in 97 to go professional, uh, I went very close to Banbury, a place called Deddington. So I got to know uh, a lot of the rally guys really quickly on the back of um, meeting some people. Um, so literally, as soon as I arrived there, to give you an idea, we went biking one day, the and uh, on the bike trip, there was uh, Richard Burns, Colin McMaster, David Lapworth, uh, Liam Clogger. Uh, on the back of that, I ended up buying Burns's bicycle off him. And, and, and that was literally not that long after I moved over. And a, a lot of those guys, Paul Hath, all of them sort of took me on board, if you like, and, and, and mentored me and helped me through it. Um, and, yeah, it's uh, Slipstream then really was us knowing that sponsorship in the UK doesn't really work. Uh, so if you think about Finland where, you know, it was the second back then, it definitely was the second biggest sport behind ice hockey. Uh, so where we in the UK would have the one show, they would have the rally program, you know, prime time. So therefore they could get sponsors and it works. Same as Spain, same in France. And we've seen that, but in the UK and Ireland, you didn't get sponsorship as such. So 
we came up with the idea that we'd copy effectively Timo Yaki's driver uh, management idea. So instead of look, looking for sponsors, we look for investors. And we quickly realized there's plenty of people that have got a lot of money uh, and given a lot of it to the taxman that could potentially invest in motorsport if they've got an interest in it. People who don't actually compete, who um, big Formula One bots used to go to races, that type of thing. And we thought, okay, we'll try and find them. So as Neil mentioned, 2000 on the Manx, uh, that was the end of our British Rally Championship. Literally a few weeks later, I ended up going to London uh, with Angus Watt, who was a guy who was advising us at the time. And Angus was a fantastic, he still is a fantastic salesman. Uh, he was selling rally cars at ProDrive. And he had been, he'd been in the touring cars for a couple of years in the sponsorship side of things. It was him actually who got the Redstone sponsorship for the Honda team, if you remember back then. Um, so he had the business nice. I had the driver development nice. We decided we'd, we'd pitch in a few quid together. And Angus had moved to London. So we ended up just going to Hammersmith, walking down the King's Road in Hammersmith, King Street, and uh, finding a serviced office. And we didn't ask them for the smallest office they had. Uh, it was £500 for two desks back-to-back, phone line, internet. And that was September 2000. And we set about trying to raise some money to go rallying in a proper car in the World Championship. Six months later, with a million quid in the bank. And off we went shopping for World Rally Cars. Uh, got Neil on board at that time. So it literally was that. It was an investment model, loosely based on what Timo Yaki did. And it's interesting as well that Jonathan Palmer took what we did and he made it an IPO, so a public offer in other words, shares for Justin Wilson at the time. But it was a very similar thing. We were quite fortunate because it was unique in the UK and with journalists like David Williams who really believed in what we were doing. And they gave us a lot of publicity around that and we started to see other people copying the model. But, you know, make no bones about it, it was literally what Timo Yaki had been doing for a long time. A very wealthy uh, Finnish businessman in his own right uh, who had an interest in rallying. But, you know, and that's what we tried to replicate with a few tweaks to it. So Neil clearly was going to be our first driver, but we were very careful that we'd have other drivers come in behind. So the second driver recruited was Simon Hughes, who at the time was one of the young up-and-coming guys in the Peugeot Championship. And again, with Neil's help and a lot of uh, driver tuition, we got Simon, especially on tarmac, going very quick. Um, where he was, he was an also running tarmac, and with our help, we sort of we got him setting fastest times against the like Rand champion and people like that. Um, so that, that's just how Slipstream came about. Um, I suppose this, I suppose, goes to both yourself and yourself, Neil and Trevor, the, the switch to the World Rally Championship in a top-level car. Um, what was the main driver behind that? Um, like, was it a daunting step coming from the, the F2 car? Um, was there much of a transition between them? Uh, it, it, it wasn't daunting for a start because... Um, We'd been obviously factory drivers for certainly two years, and, and really Asquith's uh, in the in the Civic was in effect you were sort of a, a factory driver, although not being paid and taking a budget. But um, we'd done we'd done some WRC events already with Vauxhall, so uh, the step wasn't it wasn't a daunting one by any any uh, imagination. It was it was the natural progression for us really. Uh, the BRC didn't happen in 2001 anyway. We obviously we didn't know that coming up into in 2000 because of the foot and mouth in the UK. But uh, 
Um, the transition then from driving an F2 car to uh, uh, a 206 World Rally car, that was the biggest transition. Um, but we soon got to grips with it. The car was really good. The team that we were with at the time, uh, Griffoni, they were absolutely fantastic. Um, very similar setup, really, to how Asquith was, in a way. Italians are very, very passionate about their sport and, and, and accepted us into their little family, if you will. And, and, and that made the transition a lot, a lot better um, and a lot easier for us. Um, the car itself was fantastic, absolute beast of a thing. Uh, and it was a joy to drive. It really was. It obviously took us, it didn't take us long to get to sort of 90, 95%, but as with anything in the sport at the top level where you, you're getting that last 5% or whatever out of the car, that's what the bit that takes the time, unfortunately. Um, and with only having a select few rounds to do, uh, it's difficult and you're always sort of probably on the back foot as regards, you've got to make the most of every single opportunity you can. Um, and, that, and that's the only thing, really, with having so many, so few events to try and prove yourself. That's when the pressure comes in a little bit. Um, but I think we did well enough. Again, it, it wasn't, it was an up and down season uh, for us uh, with the events we had. But um, I think we, we, we showed what we could do. And I, I was certainly happy enough with what we did at the time. Um, I suppose these cars, there were the F2 car and the and the World Rally Cars, to us, uh, the three of us, we are fascinated by both those eras. Um, how, in your own opinion, do they stand up the test of time now in terms of their technology? Uh, like, were they ahead of their time to a certain degree? Uh, the F2 cars, uh, I wouldn't say they were ahead of the time particularly. Uh, when I look back uh, now and, and seeing what technology is out there, I mean, I, I bought a car recently uh, and I've had a few cars since I retired. I've had a few, the, the odd dabble in, in the sport. Um, but nowadays, the technology in the cars, um, I, I think, has come on massively with probably suspension technology more than anything. Um, but back then, um, the F2 car was, it was, it was a Larry thing. It looked, they all looked fantastic with obviously the wide arches, etc. And they were, they were a loud, beastie, mechanical uh, machine. Um, now, obviously, going on to the WRC after that, then uh, the, the technology obviously jumped a lot for us with having um, with, with, with a four-wheel drive technology. But we were still um, driving a 206, I think, with the sequential gearbox, whereas the, the works cars were probably going on to the, um, the paddle shift and things like that. But uh, uh, the so the F2 era for us was... Um, when you look at back at it now, and there's a lot of people talking about the F2 era and how, how good it was, and obviously for us, it was great to be involved in that, but um, th those cars were were just um, a beast of things, really. There were there were a handful, certainly were a handful, but um, very enjoyable to drive. Yeah, I suppose that actually leads nicely into the question I want to ask around, you like, you've made the plan, you're planning out the, the, the attack on the World Championship. What drove you, it's probably an obvious answer to say, what drove you to the 206? One, what drove you in that direction? And two, what drove you to Profoni? Because you mentioned how good of a team they were. Where did that connection come with going to the French car, which like typically for a British best driver, you would assume you would have gone down the ProDrive route or the M Sport route. What brought you down the French route and going to an Italian team? 
it's a good question. There's two main reasons. One, from an investor point of view, clearly we had to show to them that we've got the best equipment, best team, the best value for money. And at that stage, Grafoni were the best private team in the World Championship. There's no doubt about it. You think of the drivers who'd gone through their cars. Second thing with it was there was already a car on every rally. If you remember back in 2001, and you spoke about it, you got Panizzi uh, doing the tarmac rounds in the works car and the gravel rounds. He drove the Grafoni car. And the same with Harry Rovenpera. He did the gravel rounds in the works car and the tarmac rounds. So they were effectively our teammates on the events that we did alongside them. So they were sent in one car there anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, we looked at the start of the year uh, to see what cars were competitive. And if you, uh, well, if you look at Monte Carlo in particular, Regarda Meister in the car, that finished, he finished fourth overall. Mm-hmm. Uh, so first time effectively, first private here car. Uh, but again, there was a lot of Persian Grafoni as well. There's a really close relationship. Uh, second rally out, he finished fifth in Sweden. Uh, so then we went to, we actually went to uh, Portugal. Neil came with us just to have a look at everybody, have a chat to everybody. The other thing a lot of people don't uh, understand as well, that Peugeot were very keen to have someone in the car from the UK. And... They had looked at what we had done, and through Nick Galino, who went on to, to manage the Peugeot team, but Nick Galino was the manager of Grafoni when we were there. He was our contact, effectively, and the person we went through. And Nick had a very good relationship with Peugeot, and he was encouraging us to do this to the point that they subsidized the car as well by 25, 30% at times more. So at that time, Grafoni had split their operation. They'd, they'd been known for running Toyotas and Corollas for years. Uh, so they split their operation. They called that side of it step two. And uh, Grafoni was the Peugeot side. So uh, initially we looked at the Corolla. Um, but as I said, it was 25%, 25%, 30% more expensive to run a Corolla, which in hindsight, it would have been a more reliable option for us. And, you know, with the Lexus block and everything it was towards the end of it. Neil got to drive one, the five-day test for uh, for Michelin towards the end of the year. So he was able to compare the two cars. But there was something about the Peugeot, wasn't there? You know, the, the yeah. big thing that we didn't know uh, was how is it going to behave in the hands of a privateer? Clearly with a works team, they're going to fire parts at it all the time. So how are they going to life the parts? Uh, because that's a big thing if you run a hard car business effectively. How yeah. long do you keep the parts on? How you life them? And I think that's probably one of the downsides of choosing the 206. We were maybe a wee bit too early. And if you think of Monte Carlo in Sweden, they're not particularly hard on a car. Um, but when we got to the tougher rallies that we did, then we started to see some uh, some weaknesses in it. Did, did you, I guess, with the, with the 206 guys... Um, and like it's something that you see um, in recent times as well that you know privateers uh, when you compare the, the cars that, that they're running compared to the full factory cars, um, you know you, you you can sense there might be some some differences or whatever. Did you feel that the two hundred six at the time, um, obviously Grafone being um, a really strong team, um, really professional team as you said, and with good connections to Peugeot, did you feel that there was um, a noticeable gap between what your equipment and the factory cars, or did you feel that you were on a, a pretty level playing field? Uh, personally, I, th- I think that you're always with a with a private private team like that. I think you're always going to get a car that's not full factory spec. I think I'm pretty sure Trevor will agree, but um, 
I, I did, I, obviously, we, we couldn't tell what the difference was in the factory car, uh, and, and obviously they keep things really secret, don't they? Um, but um, we, we never felt like, you know, second-rate citizens or anything like that. It, 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 was, it was a good team to go to. Uh, it was a really good car. Um, the events, well, the first event was Cyprus, wasn't it, Trev? Um, and it was, it was a newish event for us, but... Uh, I wouldn't have said the car being uh, was 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 weak in any area. It was just um, it was the rough event. But I, I I don't think personally. I don't. Trevor might disagree, but I don't think personally the the car was um, was weak in any way. The the one we hired anyway. No, I, I wouldn't say it. And and clearly, what you remember as well is within manufacturer teams there can sometimes be a better car, a more developed car. And as Neil mentioned in in Vauxhall in 1999 when we had our tarmac car, our teammate Yarmo Kittaletto didn't have that car. So we had a lightweight version that we took to the Ulster and won the Ulster. So even within teams, sometimes you get the preferred driver, the one who's maybe in a better shout of winning rallies or championships will get the updated parts first. Um, but of course, we had Gil Panizzi in, in our <laughs> setup, who was always having a go and always wanting the best because he knew the best of both worlds. And he certainly was in Grafoni's ribs all the time. Uh, and what a teammate he was. Well, the stories we could tell you about that would be here until Neil need to go to work in the morning. <laughs> that's that's actually something I was I was mentioning to the guys as well. It's something I was curious about. The amount of face time you were getting with the guys, with Gilles, Harry, Mark Scrotholm, DDRL. Was there much interaction with you being the privateer guys? We did, didn't we? We, yeah. we definitely did. You know, we, we we were sharing the same hotels most of the time. We were, sometimes we were eating out of the... Um, the recce catering vehicles and things like that, you know, on the reccees and things like that. So certainly with uh, Harry Rovenpere and Jill Panizzi, we were, we were with them quite a lot. Um, Jill Panizzi's uh, English wasn't brilliant. Our French was probably worse, uh, but. Do you remember the story Neil, when you went running with them in uh, New Zealand? He he just run he runs doesn't he run for about five minutes at about hundred miles an hour and, and that's that's it he goes he goes out and he comes back and says no I must I must run fast for a little time and that's the benefit and yeah whereas most people go out for a run for half an hour an hour whatever but no five minutes flat out but you could see that in his in his eyes his eyes were always on stalks and he, he, he's he just hilarious boy. being around him and Herb is so quiet and, and just dominated by Gilles but I went spectating with Gilles in, uh, in Finland for the shakedown because we were P2 drivers and the factory drivers went first so off we went he got his backpack on off we went up into the forest and flat out everything he did flat out and just the facial expressions and the movements and, and like just brushing past people that wanted autographs he was just the most hilarious person to be around is you, you would say nowadays to be fair you would say it was it was on drugs all the time because it was that time <laughs> if, if if you were ever in a pub and you saw somebody you go he's on something and well he was like that just all the time even sleeping say, we, we, call him, we call him like when he's driving with his eyes on bumper camp they just yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> have we just uh, have we just revealed the secret to Benitez's tarmac success in the early <laughs> yeah. maybe was there a substance? Yeah. <laughs> oh, but then, of course, Harry Rovenpower was the complete opposite. Yeah. You know, I, I first met Rovenpower in 96. Uh, if you remember, he came over in an Evo 3 and won the Scottish Rally, Group N car. 
Mm. Um, yeah, he was the opposite. He was just so laid back. I mean, Resto was, uh, but it was just as, as Neil said, the hanging around. But not only that, you know, the rest of the guys, including the Brits at the time, of Colin and Richard and, and Alistair McRae was there as well. And it was just, just great. Mark and Martin beef, all those guys. And, and they really helped us, accommodated us. You know, we used to play five-a-side football and all sorts of shenanigans would go on to in the recce's. The recce's the best part. Uh, and then pre-event tests and things like that. But mm. that's yeah. This all kind of feeds into, I suppose, our our fascination with this period of the sport. But, you know, the the guys sound exactly like you you'd hope they'd be. You know, you describe Panizzi there as as the kind of manic, wild-eyed lunatic. You know, and Harry is just a, a laid-back guy who just happens to be ferociously quick behind the wheel of the car. Um, so no, fan, fantastic um, insight then, in, into those guys there. In Corsica as well, we'd, we'd some young upstart from France run behind us in a Citroën Saxo. Uh, what was his name? Lo- yeah. Lo- oh, yeah. It's a, it's called <laughs> Humans. As so, a- it, was, it was good fun meeting those guys as well. Daniel especially and Danos, uh, you know, even back then, they were proper characters. Yeah. Was he smoking yeah, as much back then? He was. <laughs> uh, we talked about the campaign. We always joke about like having a campaign to get Daniel and Elena over to the West Court Rally. Then, then just, just. I don't think there's enough Red Bull in the bar. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you that I was, I was in the bar in Sweden with him one time, and it was just the bills he was leaving behind him in the scandal were ridiculous. <laughs> but you know, just on the point there, like, and again, I actually think we could dedicate an entire season to your stories of hanging out with, which basically are heroes. It's unbelievable, but it also gives me a lot of jealousy to think that the kind of the fun you were having with guys who are just would shape all through our teenage years. Like, I mean, you probably would have heard, like, I'm just, I'm a Burns fanatic. You're saying you're, you're hanging out with all these guys that, that, like, we still look back, even before kind of the era was where kind of getting into the dull times of WRC. That was that was my time at WRC, and just those yeah. stories are incredible. It, it was a formative time, really, because it was the perfect storm back here in Ireland, and probably in the UK as well, in terms of foot and mouth had arrived. So there was very little domestic rallying. And it fell into our lap that the WRC happened to be, it was on primetime television to a certain degree with BBC Grandstand every Saturday and Sunday. And, you know, in Ireland, RT had bought the highlights, so you'd see it regularly. So it was, uh, it's something that captured imagination. I'm about maybe four years older than the guys here. So like you're really in that, that area of your life where you're uh, heavily influenced as to what's going to be your interest for the years going forward and uh, it's a phenomenal period to to hear first-hand accounts of as well you know yeah it's funny actually you talk about the 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 tv uh, obviously with foot and mouth and then everything was the, the tv coverage was great but i remember one of your questions at uh, earlier on uh the the tv coverage i don't know about you trevor but i felt let down from a from a a, a British driver, certainly that we didn't. I didn't feel we got the uh, the coverage we should have got. I see, certainly remember in Corsica, um, we were doing it. We were doing a good job in Corsica, uh, and the the TV cameras just seemed to bypass us. Now, obviously, there's a lot of drivers, as you mentioned. There's a lot of manufacturers involved. We had the McRae Burns thing going on. Um, uh, but as a as a young up and coming driver trying to break into that WRC, I, I did I did feel let down if I'm honest uh, with um, some of the the coverage. Um, we, we we didn't seem to get what I thought we deserved. I don't know whether you noticed that, Trevor, or not. But um, 
look I when you look now and watch watching the WRC nowadays. Obviously, it's the first thing that comes if there's a beer, as a British driver coming through. That's the first thing to get mentioned, really. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things there. Uh, one is it, it is an international market, of course, and seven manufacturers involved, not all the time, but certainly you think some of those two and three cars. Uh, and the thing that's different about Finland, so at that time, clearly it's different now, but at that time, Finnish people were actually editing their own program that went out at prime time. So they have their own edits for their own drivers is where they get the sponsorship. But the global program... Um, and trying to pack everything into half an hour, it, it's clear. But it, you know, from from a, just a recognition point of view, it would have been nice. But it didn't affect our business plan because it was investors, and investors were only interested in getting some money back when we eventually signed for manufacturers. That was that was the exit that they wanted. Um, it would have been nice to have it, and I, I get what you're saying. But from our business plan point of view, um, it wasn't essential at that point. Just, uh, just can, I, can I jump in there just quickly on that and? Feel free to tell me to shut up. But are you talking about that investor model? Because it's something involved with quite a lot at the minute in my own business. You're talking about that you're the payout and that exit. What was that strategy? Because everyone knows the tradition of motorsport is how do you get a million in motorsport? You start with two. So yeah. how how were you providing that return on that model? Well, was, first off, it is highly speculative. But at that stage, a lot of these people would were investing in movies. Um, in Ireland, in particular, the Isle of Man was huge for, for movie investment. Uh, in fact, I remember on, must have been 2000, because my family were there, uh, the hotel we were staying in, Alec Baldwin was there, uh, making a movie in the Isle of Man, because um, that's where a lot of them were made. And again, that investment was a tax-efficient way of uh, doing it. Mm. So we wanted that, that money from people who had an interest in motorsport, and that was it. And of course, highly speculative, probably harder to do it now. In fact, no doubt harder to do it now because when you start to analyze who gets paid and who doesn't, uh, it's a tougher call. Um, yeah, and that's all it was. So uh, they invested in us until we got to the point where a manufacturer was paying us. Uh, Neil signed up for a five-year deal and Neil wouldn't have got uh, a lot of money in the first three, four years of that. He would have had to pay back his bit. But then eventually he starts to re revolve through it. But from our business model, it had to go back into the younger drivers. So Neil was our mature driver, if you like. Simon Hughes and Phil Pugh was co-driving. Phil Pugh, of course, went on to win a world championship mm -hmm. with Elvin. Um, so all of that investment then would go back right down to it. And a young Australian driver called Mark Thompson they came on board as well. Um, so that was the, that was the nature of it, and it, it was, so that was that was the real value proposition was the investment in the younger generations is what you yeah. essentially were selling to these. Yeah, days. worst case scenario, you lose your money or you lose your investment, but you know you're going to give it the tax man a lot of time anyway. So if you love motorsport and you want to come on the journey, and our investors came on the journey with us, and they loved the whole the whole that whole side of it. Um, yeah. With the investors obviously involved in you know the sums of money and it being the first year of what was the long-term project, you've already alluded to doing uh, Cyprus as the opening round, having attended Portugal to suss out the prospective manufacturers that you could do a privateer deal with. Was there a reason behind choosing the rounds that you did? Like, was it a strategic decision as part of a bigger picture with those certain rounds that you chose? I think Cyprus is probably the first one that we were able to get to. Um, the time we got everything tied up, secured, done the deal, 
Cyprus is probably the realistic one. The good thing with Cyprus as well, it was new to everybody. So we went there and being a rough rally, we felt if the car is reliable enough, then we'll pick our way through it. And towards the end, I suppose the afternoon, Saturday afternoon really is when you need to push on a little bit and show your pace. Uh, but up until that point, if you can survive, put in a decent performance, then that's it. So Cyprus was, was a good one for that reason. It was a strong entry, don't get me wrong. And we probably underestimated the conditions because uh, we were certainly seeing 63 degrees Celsius in the car. And as you guys know, you're competing with three-layer overalls and underwear and a helmet on. And it's an average of, what was it, 60 kilometers an hour? So you're doing 30 kilometers in 29 minutes. No air getting into the car. And that year, if you remember, the three cars caught fire. The very first stage, uh, uh, who was it, Al-Wahibi, his car went up. Third stage, uh, John Papadimitriou in a 206 World Rally car, Chris Patterson is co-driving them. It caught fire just in front of us. We saw that them lose that car and half the bank caught as well. And then didn't Petter lose his car, I think? Yeah, Petter lost yeah. his car as well. Of course, yeah. the thing with that is they're all customed in, they're all carnied in, so all of those shells have to go back out of the country again. You can't just leave it there. You have to take <laughs> it with you uh, and get it shipped back to the UK. So... Yeah, that was, that was the reason for using Cyprus. Uh, Finland was always going to be a learning rally for us to get some experience in the car on a rally that's traditionally not that rough. So we were hoping we'd get the mileage in it. And the gravel side of it was for us to go to New Zealand and shine in New Zealand. Uh, on the tarmac side of things, then uh, the, the target was Corsica. Again, just a, a rally that we felt that we could go, go well on. Uh, we also were able to put in um, Rally Deutschland when it was around the European Championship that year. So it was a precursor to going to the World Championship 2002. But we still had lots of manufacturer cars there as well. So we managed to fit that one in just to get us up to speed and get a bit of experience in the car and tarmac. So uh, then where else did we go? Uh, what other rally did we do? Then? That was it. Uh, network Q. Oh, oh rally, rally GB yeah, in the yeah. Subaru, yeah, that was that was a last minute thing that came to be. But the Peugeot rounds, we did five of the Peugeots. So yeah. Like, what did you feel was your strongest performance out of the six rounds? Well, five WRC rounds, obviously in Germany on top. But like, uh, did you were there some rounds that you were going to get more satisfaction out of than others, or you know, in terms of? I think personally, I think Corsica was a was a highlight. New Zealand was. The, certainly the gravel highlight, although um, we had some real bad luck. We were we, we were we were really quick on New Zealand. Um, uh, I mean, if I go if I start with New Zealand, for instance, we, it's a lot. It, it's a it's a long haul event, so that was new to us. You know, being on a plane for twenty four hours and then and then acclimatizing um, and, and and seeing a, a new country and everything was all was all all new to us, um, or certainly new to me. Um, but the actual event itself was fantastic the roads really did suit us um and we spent a lot of time with richard burns at that event we we went up to his to his hotel room and he and he, he talked us through some um uh, some key points uh, helping us pace notes and helping us with certain areas and, and and parts of the stages um and i felt i felt as though he was it was sort of unofficially mentoring us really which was obviously fantastic for us and he mentioned that if we could stick with uh possum born um uh possum was starting i think the car in front of us and obviously with new zealand it was all about um 
the road position um, and, and cleaning the roads because it was very bad for the loose gravel on top. But Possum was starting one foot one car ahead of us, uh, and Richard had said, "If you can if you can get anywhere near Possum, then you'll you'll be doing well." Uh, and I think in the three stages we actually completed, we 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 beat him in every single stage. Um, Trevor probably may correct me about something like ninth and seventh and fifth quickest was it on the first three stages something like that but um we, we were on it and it felt good everything was clicking um it was just so unfortunate that we didn't make it to the end of that one uh, and Corsica is similar really um obviously a tarmac event and and, and quite specialist um obviously as we as you know lots of corners and uh, quite dangerous in places um but a fantastic event and and we, we we gained in speed throughout the event, um, and unfortunately, we, I, I tried to uh, whether it was a, a a bit of a a mistake in my notes. Tried to take a corner a bit too fast, and we ended up just um, just sliding off on that one on the last day, which is a real shame because we were we were trying to prove a point. On each rally, we were trying to prove a point, and and um, I wouldn't say necessarily finish every every rally, um, but it, more for us it was as how quick how how fast our stage times were is irrelevant to the um, to the other guys around us, uh, and if we can get on the pace of them and get some quick times, and that was that was more of a benefit to us than actual um, finishing the event, say like in the top fifteen or something. If we could get some good good stage times, that we felt that was more important. Just to give you an idea of the performance, so we went to Cyprus. First stage we didn't complete because of uh, Al Wahibri's car and. Stage time we got was a minute and 30 seconds slower and the fastest. It was Nigel Heath, uh, a gentleman driver's notional time that we got. And back then, the stewards didn't adjust anything. That was it. And everybody behind got that time. Second stage, I think we're 12th quickest. First time on gravel. And if you think of the people in front of us, all works cars, effectively bar one or two. Third stage again, we, uh, we ended up getting Freddie Doerr's time, I think which was two minutes and 30 off fastest. So overall, didn't worry. Um, so that was Cyprus basically done. The first stage and the second day, uh, we busted Sump, I think it was, Neil, on the yeah. Sump gearbox, yeah. yeah. Uh, just a rock through the Sump card. And Granholm had the same problem, I think, in the works car. Um, and then Finland, as I say, was just getting miles in. But New Zealand, as, as Neil said, the whole point where we could really make an impression, we felt, was New Zealand. Because number one, there's not that many privateers, privateers go to it. Uh, the year before, I think Gardemeister got his drive was set on the back of, um, of having a strong performance in the first day. Of course, there's a bit of road clean that helps you. But Neil's right. You know, we're ninth, seventh, and fifth quickest. The, the fifth fastest time was 3.7 seconds off fastest. We reckon we would have been fastest the next one until we had fuel starvation problems, I think is the official term. Uh, at that stage or in that year, I'm sure you guys will have picked up on it as you go through the year, where quite a few cars ran out of fuel. Um, and the, apparently it was an issue with the rig where, you know, it, it got a bit of a uh, an air block in it and it wasn't pumping the fuel that it expected to. So, um, yeah, if we had got to the end of that day, uh, easily I think we could have had a clean run in the top four of top five then we've made a remark. You know, manufacturers will look at you then and they'll notice you, especially your first proper rally in gravel. And tarmac was the same. You go to Corsica and you're, you're lying ninth overall at one point with turbo issues again on the first day and the fourth stage. Uh, and uh, 
Then we had a puncture the second day, but we set fifth quickest times. We tied with Panizzi in the works car, you know, and, and you can't really beat that. And Germany is the same. If you look at the, the, the stage times in Germany, go back and do that. You know, we had over there with Delacour, with Granholm, with Bogalski, I think it was, in the, in the Citroen. And then you privateers, you know, Delacour, yeah. Uh, you privateers such as uh, Armin Kramer was leading the rally on the first day. Uh, Matthias Kalle and uh, Arkham, uh, Arkham Myrtle, who was our, he was the All-Stars driver. He was big privateer opposition for us at the time. Yeah, so I think every rally we, apart from Finland really, and we knew we weren't going to, we weren't going to uh, contend in Finland. It was just about getting experience. Uh, but also getting a little bit of kudos uh, around it. So, I, I think I, looking looking back at the times, um, especially in, in New Zealand, I think Tommy, you pointed it out in a previous chat we had that you were, I think, around point three of a second a kilometer off Grand Home. Like, let's face it, that's probably the difference between the wax car and the and the private car you had like that. So that's a phenomenal phenomenal performance, um, to to be to be that that quick and up with those guys and your, your raw position wouldn't have been too far for the behind ground home um on, on on that day so that was that was um fantastic and to even you know, to even get close to Panizzi in, in Corsica I mean as we've we've kind of said already Panizzi was the man on dry tire at the time um so that's that's pretty Just incredible. Going away. <laughs> yeah we do yeah we've established yeah. the cancer of the bag yeah. Club Anthem's 2001 yeah. it, it is interesting both Panizzi and Delacour when you, when you watch them back then especially in a rally like Corsica uh, and it's only after we cut a long story short we basically got a guy called John Stephen involved for a bit of tarmac tuition John Stevens was a Formula One coach, effectively. So he'd worked with like a Mika Hacken and he did a little bit of Schumacher, Eddie Irvine, a few people like that. So we got him actually out to the Nürburgring, the Norschleifer. Uh, and we had our recce car for Germany. It was an Audi 80 TDI. You love this, lads. About 170,000 mile on it, Neil, wasn't it? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> left-hand drive, that's why we had that, wasn't it? It was, our yeah. left, it was my left-hand drive car that I was driving around the UK in. Um, <laughs> Yeah, Savage. Savage. it wasn't very good around the Nordschleife, though. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that fits nicely into this kind of stuff we like as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, I like a diesel, lads, don't I? It was on, it was on, it was on white, so it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Only part of the year. <laughs> um, but you know, part of the learning we picked up on there was the things that we used to do in slipstream, just try and stretch it and, and pick up. And like, the guy was. Well, at the time, I think it was 750 quid a day. I don't think he's any he's no longer with us. But um, and it was just little things that got. And and one thing that we noticed, or a couple of there's a couple of things, but uh, especially did we go to Donington? Neil, was it you? Or uh, it was, yeah, because because of the, I think because of the car that we yeah. took to uh, Germany. Obviously, we used that for the reason because we were using it as a recce car. But um, I think he, he felt a little bit sorry for us that we turned up and we didn't. He didn't think we'd. <laughs> We learnt what we we should have done, um, so he gave us a deal, didn't he? And we took um, Subaru Impreza around Donington. Uh, yeah, it was my brother's Subaru Impreza, <laughs> which we, we we ragged around there for half a day, and I got back, and two weeks later it blew up. So my brother wasn't best pleased with that one, to be honest. But, but the point, um, the story is what we realised early on. Uh, was that we were probably, as, as a typical thing of rally drivers, you we were cutting corners, heading for apexes rather than turning in a little bit later. And if you look back and you watch the videos of Panizzi and Delacour, 
especially in rallies like San Remo and Corsica, you'll notice them turning into the apex a little bit later, going past the corner effectively. And there's less load on the tires. And it was something that Richard picked up on as well. So he started to go a lot quicker on tarmac in the back of that. Uh, and that's something that we learned from John Stevens. I, I don't know if that's accurate, Neil, or you, you can back yeah, me up. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, we, I felt I learned quite a lot from him. And, then, and, and as you say, when you look at um, uh, Panizzi back then and, and more Loeb um, of, of the last you know, the few years, he was exactly the same the way he drove on tarmac. Uh, and it's a, you, can, you can probably carry it through to a racing line on gravel to a certain degree as well. But obviously, it, it is slightly different. But um, there are certain aspects of the tarmac driving you can you can take across to the to the gravel as well. But um, we learned a lot from that. And, and again, it was the small percentages, like you say there, that um, all helped. Um, and whether whether it made a difference, it certainly made a difference psychological because you knew you'd covered all bases and, and you were the best prepared you could be. But um, uh, yeah, it was um, it was certainly well worth well worth it. That's an interesting point there, just um, on, on the approach other drivers were taking. I know Burns was, as you mentioned there, uh, he was obviously noticing what the what the guys were doing. He was getting quicker and quicker on tar, especially in two thousand in in the, the Peter Thousand in Presa. He he was really really quick on on the legs of Corsica and San Remo, um, as well until he had until he had his issues. Um, I suppose just um, this is around the time as well that pace notes were starting to get more and more detailed and people were starting to move away from the the kind of simple you know six fastest notes or whatever they were using um, if you look you know we, we, we can see from this year that Barnes notes were incredibly detailed um, <laughs> in comparison to some other some other drivers notes so what kind of system were, were you guys using and do you know what was the recce like for for you guys um, in the event what were the, the main watchouts in that well, it's interesting actually because it was it was Richard that that really helped me with my pace notes, our, our pace note making. Um, uh, we we sort of we, we were constantly evolving with with making the pace notes. And uh, Richard, uh, one thing Richard helped us with was um, he turned our uh, let's say route notes into into pace notes and and you know speed notes, if you will. Uh, so, for instance, we would have a series of corners. Whether our our system was um, six was the fastest uh, and hairpin, and then like a a, a ninety and a one. Uh, so, in effect, one to six, six being flat out. Um, so, if we had a series of corners, i.e., uh, left left six, right six, uh, and then a distance, but then we we would have things like caution, bridge, or caution uh, square right, for instance. Uh, Richard was very keen for us to take all that negative uh, information out of the pace notes. Um, and it was absolutely bang on because your mind, when you when you listen to the notes, uh, you might even listen to every single note, but as soon as you hear the word caution or care or, or bridge, for instance, then your mind's already fixated on that that one element of, the, of, of a series of notes. And then consequently your foot might come off the throttle that fraction earlier or whatever. Uh, and it, that was one major plus for us and, and, and us making the pace notes from then on. Um, and, uh, we, us personally, we tried to keep it as simple as possible. Uh, and I know, um, I can't remember specifically Richard's notes, but um, for instance, Petter Solberg notes and Phil Mills, I, I, I honestly couldn't, I couldn't would drive to them pace notes. There's far too much information. I always liked them as simple as possible. 
Uh, and that's what Richard helped us with, with, with taking a lot of information. We didn't really need certainly information that would slow us down. Um, that was a, that was a massive thing for us. Um, I think the recce's back then, were they three days, Trev? I can't remember to be fair, but um, they were yeah. normally a three day recce, yeah. weren't they? But the other thing with, uh, with that part of it, and of course I have to give credit to Robert Reed. It wasn't just Richard, Robert yeah. was helping us both. You know, it was, uh, the two of them and the two of us in a room, uh, learning loads from them. The other thing, which is interesting, if you think of the fast rallies in Sweden and, and Finland in particular, Richard versus Colin McRae. So Colin McRae's note as, as Niels was a six was the fastest note. Now a six could mean that you turn the steering wheel five degrees, 10 degrees, 15 degrees. And if you can over crest and you're trying to pick lines, well, you know, how do you know what's on the other side of it? How do you know how to pick that line? Whereas Richard would have probably three different notes that the car would be flat out on two big advantages of that. One is it helps you pick your line, helps you keep the car settled, helps you relax more. Secondly, when it does get a little bit dusty or a little bit foggy, then you can go a lot faster with those notes because you're changing the angle of the steering on the really fast, like we're talking about the flat out stuff. Uh, and Richard, I felt sometimes had too much detail in, but you know, we, we've all got our, our different ways of doing it. Um, so there's, there's a couple of things like that. And we were always on the lookout for, we're always asking questions, always hungry for knowledge. It's something I've done all my life and I still do. Uh, what can, what do you guys done made mistakes that we, you know, we want to avoid those mistakes. What can you help us with? And I keep telling everybody, young drivers, go and ask people for help and they'll give you help. Go and do what they tell you. Go back and say, I've done that. What else can I do? And they'll love it. Absolutely love it. You get, I get a buzz from helping people and then come back and saying, yeah, it worked. You know, I, what, I, what I love about that is, and I think there's a nice combination of, let's say, between myself, Morris and Tommy, between me doing driving. I've done a lot of navigating as well. Morris has sat with me. Tommy's done probably more than both of us combined. You're all tired. experience. It's really nice to hear that development of pesos because I even found when I started my first year, I was on that caution route where there was double, triple cautions, highlighters on page. And I remember my first accident in the Rally of the Lakes down on the air groom stage. I don't know how well you know it or Trevor you might know it. But all, all, all down to being overcautious coming into a corner. And then I remember even with the Vincent and Mars kind of changing style and again taking the influence from, like again, I would have used the simplest six fastest getting the Burns influence of getting a bit more descriptive, but then trying to have what's actually relevant. And again, getting the advice from more experienced people of taking out small distances of like, for example, I would take out forties because it's just, there's no time to get information in like that. But so it's nice to hear you guys going through that at that level. But I think Joe, no, it made no difference to me because I was still slow. I was still sure. So, I, I mean, I, I could have the best notes in Ireland and it didn't work, but it's nice to hear that comparison, you know? But remember, yeah. a lot of that was coming halfway through that 2001 season. Now, we weren't slow up to that point. Yeah. If you look at what we did, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. even in the Civic, you know, and, and the pace that we were running that then, it's just this little bit all the time, this little edge, trying to get something that's going to be even better. But I think your point is all about not, not sticking to a, especially for younger guys who are starting out, let's say, behind us as well, not sticking to something and go, this is the way it's going to work, just keeping changing and asking and asking because... I mean, yeah. the guys competing 10, 15, 20 years are still going to learn. But. Look, if you go out and you 
every single stage is perfect and you're hitting every apex nice and they they don't have to worry about any of this you don't need coaching you don't need help you don't need membership if (laughs) your focus your concentration once every so often then maybe somebody can help you yeah i suppose you've alluded to it there already in terms of going around the norberg ring in a clapped out all the 80 uh, (laughs) you using that as your recce car sounds Um, sounds great it does to be honest we can't really our our level of glamour hasn't uh, gone much further than that either at times um a typical rally week at the wrc level um the contrast between that and your time as a works box oil driver um i would imagine with the reckies uh, was it still a two-pass recce at that stage Uh, like in, in terms of your recce structure and things like that because you'd you were operating now at the World Rally Championship level. Can you give us an insight into the difference in terms of organisation? Obviously, you've alluded to the differences in the evolution of the notes throughout the year. But I, I think we, we were spoiled, really, from Asquith days because they ran a professional outfit. Mm. Um, we, had a, we had a decent recce car. Like we were using the Group N Civic to go wrecking in when we were in the Group A car, a Super 1600 car. And, and you know, it's like the Civics boys, as long as you've got a decent ECU in it, you know, it's a serious <laughs> job, lads, you know. Talk it down. Careful though, Trevor, talking about <laughs> ECUs and Group N Civics, we get a lot of fellas into trouble, but anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and of course, as you as you move up, you get a better record car, you get better hotels, but and you get people to look after your travel and what we experienced then with Vauxhall was that sort of as you'd imagine work set up moving to Grafoni no different really because uh, you know they're they're as close to works as you're going to get we we organized our own flights uh they had the team hotels booked and we just slotted in and of course we've got the Salikas the Grafoni Reckies the KAM registrations that was pretty special we enjoyed those cars um, but the reason with the ID80 in Germany was it was a last minute deal and we did everything on a budget to get there and get the experience. Um, so therefore we decided to take our own recce car, which is good enough in Tarmac, let's face it. At that time, uh, we were looking at uh, footage there of Burns and McRae, not McRae, Burns and uh, Robert Reed. they were using an onboard camera system in the car. And I know that I'd heard from, you know, Jerry McGarrity, Trevor, uh, that... Uh, Mark Fisher was using the onboard camera inside in the car sometimes for just to improve and spot things. And I think Gordon alluded to it on your podcast. Was there any stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Charlie McGuckin. Mm -hmm. Was there anything in that kind of uh, regard that you guys were taking heed of and applying in your practice in the world championship? I remember Richard and Robert were doing it in New Zealand that year, but only when we got there did we know that that's what we were doing. That's my memory of it, Neil. Unless you can yeah. think of it. In a different no, I don't. I think it was. It was all quite new back then, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, it certainly was. And don't forget, twenty years ago, I think when I started with Vauxhall, we were the mobile phones we had back then weren't quite the mobile phones we had now. With the technology that the people have uh, available to them for the recce's and the rallies, etc., uh, it's 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 amazing what they've got. But um, Richard and Robert, um, were, were they using that, like you say, for the first time? Um, we didn't use it, I don't think, after that. I thought we probably only did a couple of rallies, I think, anyway, after that. Uh, but it was, it was relatively new technology, I seem to remember. Just to give you an idea of some of the stuff that Richard and Robert were looking at, they used to go to audiologists. If you remember, they were using earbuds inside their helmets. 
um, because just it was a little bit clearer. And, and, and again, Richard went and had, uh, he got his eyes checked out because in the fog, remember in Radnor when he blitzed everybody past Oriel, I think. Even us in the Civic that year, we had a good time, if you remember. Yeah, ninth uh, Neil, quickest. Yeah. Ninth quickest in the Civic, I think, yeah. in the fog in Radnor. Um, again, just listening to notes and it's ballsy stuff. In fairness, counting down to corners and things oh, like that. Yeah. You, need, you need to be on it. Um, but Richard went and he got it. And his contrast, he could see contrast more than the average. And whether it's right or whether it's wrong, he knew in the back of doing that, he had an advantage over somebody. And when he told people, they knew an advantage. So again, it's just a psychological thing. And it's just going to a rally and knowing that you've gone above and beyond. Like some of the stuff we did, we used a hypnotherapist. Mm-hmm. Um, I hypnotized Neil and I sat beside each other. You know, this is some of the stuff that we'll find out later on when he comes to my podcast. So, yeah. That's just, a really interesting point on, on the Burns thing. Because I know he's always had the reputation for going so well in the fog. And like just down to his, the way he drives or his calmness. But the point there about the contrast on the eyes, that's, that's an incredible one there. Oh, yeah. That, that, and, and Liz Linford with us, uh, Liz Linford, a body tech as she was back then. Some of the things that, uh, we tried, like we'd, we talked about diet, you know, back then, we were talking 2001 diet and looking for uh, intolerances in food and things like that. We discovered an intolerance in food and one of the team members we were with, I'll not say who, but uh, an intolerance to tomato. And it completely changed his health. And we've discovered that and cut tomatoes out. So again, when you go to the hot rallies in particular, uh, I know in Cyprus with that sort of temperatures, we were going through 13, 14 liters of fluid a day. And Neil was very big into his fitness, maybe not as much as he is now. He's probably been out on his bike, cycled to the Lake District today, swam Windermere and cycled back. But um, but even back then, um, you know, we, we were taking a lot all of that stuff very seriously as well. And again, because I knew a lot of people in Pro Drive, I was always getting in their ribs about things and, and finding out. And same with the coordinators, you know, from, from your point, Tommy. Uh, I became friendly with John Kennard and Ken Reese back then, the two coordinators in the Subaru World Rally team. So always asking for documents from rallies. When we went to San Remo for the first time with uh, Ask Us, they'd give us a load of stuff, you know, and uh, I was in there annoying them loads of times. Again, yeah, it's just asking for help. But I was actually just one on the project point there. I'll get to that. But it's in, funny enough, I actually had the pleasure of meeting Ken Reese before a couple of years ago at an event in Ireland. It could be quite close and friendly with my aunt who, who compete a lot here in Ireland. Um, but yeah, that's like great guys, great atmosphere there, which kind of brings me nicely on to the project point. The switch to the Impreza for GB. Yeah. What, like, was it down to the fragility of the car or the issues you had the 206 or did you just feel between the combination of a project car in GB? What was behind that? Uh, a couple of things if I remembered, right, I probably angus about this because he was a deal maker uh one is super were keen to get us in the car because they were looking at using us for the following year and there was a part deal on the table so it was uh it was a good deal first and foremost uh with no plans to use a 206 on the rally we weren't going to go uh we'd, oh and all that was that was never part of us no Rally GB was never, we thought, well, we know how to go fast. What credit are we going to get for going to Rally GB? Because you're expected to do well there. Yeah. It's, it's the maddest thing ever. You know, a lot of people want to do their home rally, but you're expected to go quicker. So what's the point? So we'd never put it in the program at all. Uh, it's the same with the Formula One drivers. Remember, 
Derek, uh, well, Martin Brundle and, and the sports car driver, Derek Bell, they all were able to get budget to go to their home round of the championship. That's mm-hmm. the hardest rally. The surface changes. Those guys are used to dry tarmac or wet tarmac, or maybe damp tarmac. And if you go wherever you go in the world, it's the same spec tarmac. You go to Rally GB and you go into breakfast, there's a 100-meter corner and you have three different surface changes in that one corner. You know? <laughs> so inevitably, and they've got somebody piping on their ear. So inevitably, they're going to slip off the road quite early and get frustrated. But uh, yeah, it was never part of it. <laughs> it was an all-stars car there, um, and they wanted to run it, and they wanted us in the car. As I said, we ended up getting a deal uh, that we could have uh, we could have been in the third car for seven rallies in 2002, and the deal was there. And Neil was talking about the long haul flight to to New Zealand. Um, well, I stopped in Sydney on the way to visit some friends, and that's when 9/11 happened. I thought this could change things. You know, it's disastrous for for everybody involved and the, and the loss of life and everything but that effectively cut our business model short as well because anything speculative we talked about before mm. was going to dry up so uh um yeah so we had a deal uh both with subaru at the end of 2001 for do seven rallies and with hyundai to do all of them and they were very heavily subsidized deals by the manufacturers themselves uh and that's how close we were to it we tried to get the second round funding in place. We actually spoke to investors. We'd lead investors nailed on, but they wouldn't go alone. They needed secondary investors, and we couldn't find that. Simply ran out of time to get it sorted. And we tried to rejuvenate it uh, towards 2003, and towards that, and we eventually put, put everything on the shelf in August 2002. But that was the main reason why uh, we did the deal. And Pirelli came on board, which is why the livery... Uh, it was a, a little bit last minute looking and it was, but surprising a lot of people absolutely love the livery on that car. I don't get it. I think it was a, just a mismatch of a load of stuff. What, what are those things? What are those case, things? Could be a case of less is more sometimes, you know, <laughs> one brand kind of. You know, just on, on, on that point, while, while Ron, um, a little as move on then, on, on that switch to Impreza, comparison, direct comparison, Neil, obviously you had a lot of time behind the wheel of the 206 at this stage. Yeah. A lot of mileage at that level. Not, not, obviously, people might say there's a biased pro-driver British setup. Well, I t- obviously, I drove the 206 for uh, f- maybe four rallies uh, and tested it as well. But I also, as Trevor's alluded to earlier on, Griffoni got us in a Toyota Wheel rally car with a joystick for four or five days testing in Greece. Uh, and I think over a period, I can't remember what part of the year, but it was towards the end of the year, uh, I'd driven four different Wheel rally cars in the space of about, I don't know, eight weeks something like that um and there was a lot of engineers uh, wanting to talk to me uh about the the uh the different cars are driven uh, i remember talking to uh richard's engineer uh we went testing with him in south wales before network q and we went to watch a test uh, with him and we were staying in the same hotel um and i was getting quizzed left right and center by his engineer uh about how what he felt the car was like and things like that but um i'd also driven the hyundai accent um at uh, sweet lamb i think it was um and it's funny because each car had its own downsides and and, and upsides um the 206 was fantastically powerful um brilliant on tarmac um 
the Impreza was unbelievable chassis wise. It was uh, it it was. It was the best handling car I've ever driven, but I, I felt the engine let that down really. Um, to which um, there have been many conversations between Burnsy and his engineer about that fact, but I sort of concreted that for him, uh, much to the annoyance of Burns's engineer at the time when I said, I don't think the engine's very good. Um, <laughs> the Hyundai Accent, again, that was a great little car, uh, really good. I seem to remember for some reason the en- engine braking on that was really good. Um, but again, the Toyota. Um, perhaps that would have been a great car for Network Q because it's bulletproof. Um, but obviously, we had more uh, plans in place for for the year after, which is obviously the reason for the the Impreza switch. Um, um, I can't remember actually, Trev. We did actually test the uh, the older shape Subaru, didn't we, at one point? And then we we had a sudden late switch, I think, to the newer shape one with the paddle shift. I seem to remember. I can't quite work out why. What happened there? Was it an all-stars car that got changed to a... Yeah, it, it just became available. And so yeah. we'll put you in the best car so we can yeah. see the performance better. Yeah, and the performance is good on that rally. Uh, yeah. You think of St. Guino, the, the iconic Colin McRae car footage of St. Guino down the back of it. Um, I think we were something like 12 or 13 seconds behind him on that. It wasn't, it wasn't a whole lot anyway, but... That was uh, no, you would have, you would have passed Tommy. You would have passed Tommy. Pulled over the side of the road. So that said, yeah, we obviously yeah. we will get to that later on in the series. Um, I've I've been lucky enough just to have a quick spin in a Corolla WRC car, like what like what you alluded to there, Neil, with the with the joystick and this thing had the it was the, the even the later evolution again that was done by Step Two with the paddles and stuff. Just an absolute spaceship, right? And I felt as if it, it wasn't um, on a rally or anything. It was just a test spin. And I found it hard to look at the road, and I was only in the passenger seat. So <laughs> I, get, I, like, I can only imagine what it must have been like for you as well, Trevor. It, Obviously, you were used to the pace of cars at that stage. Can I just put in a warning here? Morris is probably the world's biggest pro WRC fan slash nerd slash. <laughs> so He'll argue with you about the different gear shift variations. Yeah, that are in the <laughs> he knows the part number on the chassis number of the car he tested. I can guarantee. <laughs> The knowledge that you boys have is incredible. Yeah. I listen to it. Like, it's just nuts. The in, in some circles, we might be losers, but in this one... Oh, we are. Don't worry. Yeah. Yeah. My yeah. mother thinks I'm cool. It's all right. <laughs> but, I seem to remember when I, you didn't go. It was, I, I was testing by myself, I think. I went to Greece, didn't I, with Michelin. And uh, we had that Corolla there. Um, it was very surreal for me because I... Most of the people were, were French speaking, um, and we're, I was saying staying with them on, I, on, on that four day test. But I th- we just used one pit of road, I think it was a, a two mile section, and it was, a, it was a big wide road up to a quarry. And, and every half an hour, the road had to get stopped um, for us, for the, for the wagons to go up and down, and occasionally they spray it with water to keep the dust down. But um, it didn't seem the, uh, the most well there wasn't a lot of health and safety put it that way because I was always at the back of my mind there was a 20 ton truck coming the other way with a lot of rocks in the back of it but um, all I remember from that was the uh, Michelin engineer had hired a car from the airport and then there was only one junction on the road and they'd put the hire car blocking the junction with a young Greek lad basically stopping anybody wanting to come up to it and I'd flown up and down this road uh, 200 times a day for, for four days uh, 
not thinking anything about the car uh, that was parked on the side of the road, but you can imagine what the side of that hire car looked like when <laughs> I'd done four days. <laughs> it was an absolute mess. But that was, <laughs> apart from the car, that was one of the main things I thought uh, remember about that. Test. So, some of the tests were incredible, weren't they? You think of the first test we did with Grafoni in Italy. Um, yeah. We got to like 12 o'clock and said, right, we stop for lunch now. And okay, we'll go and grab a sandwich somewhere. We thought, no, no, down to us. Off we go to a restaurant. Must have been what, a nine course lunch with yeah. wine. Yeah. Two and a half hours, we reckon. <laughs> like, we're itching. We're, we're going to test this car. And no, you, you wouldn't, you definitely wouldn't rush that. Uh, yeah. And then uh, that was it. That was, and of course, the guys, a lot of them were ex Lancia. Uh, and the stories that those boys could tell us. I was quite happy to sit there for a couple of hours. And just hear about Lancia stories and yeah, Cesar Fiorio and, and Nino Russo and, and all the stuff they got up to. Yeah. Grafone was uh, Tabatan's, Fabrizio Tabatan's uh, team, wasn't it? Or it was some, yeah, yeah exactly, so yeah. obviously he, he was ex Lancia uh, yeah. uh, back, back in the day. So that's, our, our, no, our number one mechanic uh, left the team during the year we were there and went to Ferrari. So he ended up being number one mechanic, I think, on Schumacher's car. He certainly Whoa. was on, on Irvine's at some point. Well, that's pretty. Your are by whatever whoever yeah. was there at the time, but yeah. yeah. I, I suppose, guys, you know, we we keep going. You know, I suppose as I keep saying, the fascination with this era that we have. Um, when you were involved in it, um, did you feel like you were part of something huge? Um, at the time, I I know just from my own experience and from talking to other people at the moment as well. The current era, you know, we we've kind of recognize it as as pretty special and something we look back at in years to come did you feel something similar um back then or was it just all part of kind of your, your development in the sport i think i think it was because we'd been it, it would all it was all leading up to that uh, for us uh, i was talking to somebody today about it and i was t- telling him stories and uh of of, of my career uh, he's he's just started rallying actually of late and he he was amazed at, at, at the stories and the people I was rallying against and uh, he says well I, he says I can't believe it that this, that's a dream thing I said well it, it is and it was but for us back then um, it was highlighted to me in in 99 I think when uh, Mike Nicholson the team manager of Vauxhall um, basically told us uh, before a stage right I want you to go absolutely flat flat out because i want to put i want to see how you are i think it was on the network queue maybe when not yamo um i was our teammate uh and that's he told us to go flat out it doesn't if you crash the car you crash the car i want to see basically want to see how competitive we were against yamo or how competitive yamo was against me um and at that point i thought this is a job now because leading up to that point it was all a bit honeymoon period and what have you but you know, when you've been paid paid to drive and, and, and get results, that was a sort of a click moment for me where I thought, right, okay, you know, he wants to see results, he wants to see stage times, and, and this is now a job. And obviously, for us, the World Championship was always the goal, and it, and it, and it probably is for, for most rally drivers. Uh, and the transition then from the BRC, we'd obviously done the, a few WRC events and also we'd been out working on events to get experience of, of the events themselves and, and, and do some networking and do ice note, uh, ice cruise for Hyundai and, and, and gravel cruise on and Catalonia and things like that. So we were always sort of 
we were sort of feeding our way into it gently. Um, so then when we got into the WRC, obviously it wasn't a massive uh, culture shock for us. Um, and I, I seem to remember going to uh, Monte Carlo when we was doing ice notes. I went out by myself and did ice notes for um, Alistair McRae in the Hyundai. And, and yeah, it was, it was actually for Alistair because uh, I, I knew David Senior quite well. Um, and I would get up at three or four o'clock in the morning and, and, and I'd get given a set of roadmaps and the team would say, right, well, I want you at such a position at six o'clock in the morning. So I'd navigate myself to the side of a mountain, sit there and wait for the sun to come up and, and, and take a temperature of the road and things like that. Um, so it was all it was all just feeding into sort of get into that world championship and, and, and feeding our dream, really. It's interesting the point there you made with Mike Nicholson, um, uh, the Vauxhall team boss. It kind of ties in a little bit with what uh, Trevor had been discussing on his own podcast lately about the having the right mental attitude when you go competing. It falls in as well with positivity and the things of uh, the hypnotherapy work that you guys did in terms of being as positive about how you can go about doing the sport. Trevor, do you feel that in the sport of rallying, it, there's a certain amount of bravado within the sport, but intelligence and how you approach your sport. And in 2001, with it being such a competitive era, you had to be quite intelligent about how you did it. Yeah, and when you look at the entry list, the competition was huge. You think of the privateers that are there trying to do what we wanted to do and, and impress the works team, of course. So any little piece that we, any edge that we could find, that's what we were, we were always looking for. Um, and we, we've been doing that for years, actually. Uh, ask us, we're very good at that as well. The whole positive psychology, helping us, you know, this family integration, you know, we just really getting us up for a rally before we started. And I'd never experienced that really. And in Ireland, you just cracked on, you did it. There's no thinking about that side of it, but being organized, having everything there, the preparation side of things was just huge. And it just makes you a lot more relaxed when you go to the event and and confident that you've, you've got covered all the bases and it's something, you know, talking to Gordy Noble and, and Rory Candy with their over 40 years of experience, over a thousand rally starts between them. It's the same story comes out and, and it comes down to one main thing. It's hard bloody work. You've got to put in the graft. You know, it's clouds and dirt. So the clouds are brilliant when you're up there, but geez, you have to get in the trenches if you want to get there. And, and that's dragging you out of your comfort zone. But go back to the same thing. I was never an expert in sales. I was never an expert in understanding business models, but I knew plenty of people who were. And one particular person was Angus Watt and he wanted to do it. And the timing couldn't have been better. And that was, uh, that was the last piece, you know. So uh, in this office where I sit, the only trophy you'll see is the runners-up co-drivers trophy. We won the manufacturers of Oxon in 2000. But you don't need more motivation than that to be first last. And, uh, and that was why, you know, literally six weeks later, two months, I was sat in an office in London trying to get the money for the next one. A lot of people forget about the, uh, the learning that comes with everything. Um, the highs are great in any sport, in any endeavor you do, the highs are great, but the lows are through the floor. The big thing about the lows is you've got to take the learning and move on. And this is these top sports people like Tiger Woods, you take a Roger Federer, people like that. It's the amount of time they beat themselves up is minimal now. You know, you go and you make a silly mistake 
and you go off or you call a bad note or whatever it may be. And Rory Kennedy talked about this. You can beat yourself up for weeks and months on end. You might not get over it. A lot of people don't get over it. But those guys can get it down to two or three seconds. Made that mistake, got the learning, and moving on. Those are the things that are going to help you in the long term. But again, you need to have the hunger to look for it before anybody's going to help you because unless you want to do it, and I'm experiencing at the minute this 56-year-old trying to learn how to market a business and social media and give things back, working out what people want. I'm learning as I go, but I'm absolutely loving the process. And you know you've picked the right career or the right job or the right thing that you want to do in life, like your passion for rallying and this particular era. If you find a job that will allow if you get paid to do that, it's quite incredible, isn't it? But you've got to enjoy the process as well as the results. And once you've nailed that, no matter what it be, and again, me prepping for a rally back then, I loved the whole process of trying to find the mistakes in the road book, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that's, that's when you know you've nailed it. Can I just jump in on there, last? Because it's actually really nice to hear you make that point as well, Trevor, because even kind of outside of the sporting aspect, I think even for me, like when I started out, I mean, when I was, I mean, I had my rally car before I had a road car. I, had a, I was building it when I was 16, so it was just, everything when I do it but I went through that period of going through frustration failures and everyone knows the struggles of getting started in the sport but I think even let's say drawn on what I learned over those first couple of years applying that now to what's say like I'm starting up my own venture now at the minute and I think if I was doing what I'm doing now not having gone through what I learned in the sport I think I'd have a much different experience now so I think you can also have a lot to answer for in terms of what I'm capable of doing now because of the lessons you learn like still picking yourself up after failures learning processes kind of because it's a difficult sport. It's probably one of the most difficult sports out there. Motorsport is. But I think rallying is that extra bit on top of other motorsports, given its nature. So, like, the life skills you learn on top of it as well are just incredible. Well, you know, that's it. You know, that was For me, when I stopped competing in 2005, I had to pick what I was going to do. And to travel the world for nine years getting paid to do your hobby, it's, it's, it's not a bad thing. So how do you replace it? And you start to look at why I did what I did. What was the why? What, what did I get the biggest kick out of? And apart from the competing and the success and all of that, as I say, the highs are up there. But for me, it was taking drivers and working with drivers to get them to move from clubman level up to international to world level. And you get some buzz from helping people and then saying, yeah, that was good, that worked. Mm-hmm. And I've continued to do it. And those skills, I can apply to anything. You know, I've helped people move house. I've helped people change their career. Um, you know, I've helped drivers and co-drivers, et cetera, the usual stuff. But the last 14 years have been helping business, you know, mostly automotive industry, anybody within a, a car showroom, right up to dealer principal level, launching new products where some things can be quite complicated, making them really simple for people to understand and pass that story on to a customer. Mm. That's what I've been doing. And, you know, you're right, absolutely 100% right. The learning you can pick from this sport, uh, and you can you can apply it in your relationships at home. You can apply it in business uh, and life in general. Absolutely, it's interesting. Even the point that William made there about what you learn from it. Um, as I progress progressed up through the ranks, navigating the demands that are placed on you by the people you're surrounded by as you go into more professional teams, how that drives you in your professional life as well as navigating and rallying itself you're absolutely right. You can take all the learnings from that to use that same competitive instinct to drive yourself forward professionally or, you know, in your own life in whatever aspect. Um, but it actually ties 
nicely and you talked about the highs and lows. Obviously, your first season in the WRC 2001 was a high and there was a number of offers on the table for 2002. Um, 2002 potentially might have been a good year for you guys because Neil alluded to earlier about feeling a bit short-changed about the TV coverage, whereas for the first time you had prime-time terrestrial TV coverage with British journalists covering it on national TV at home. Um, can you listen to the situation that you found yourselves in post-RAC? Again, it wouldn't, it wouldn't really affected us that much because we would have been part of the works team then. Um, and all we need to do is impress the works teams. That's it. And continue to impress them and do better than your teammate. You know, the biggest competitors, not your teammate as well. It's the one inside your head. So once you get the self-belief and the confidence and, you know, we've, we've had a good history with teammates. Um, we've been able to compete fairly quickly with them. Uh, more experienced people, you think of Yarmo Kittaletta, you think of Mark Higgins. Uh, and again, if you look at Gilles Benizzi on gravel and you look at Harry Roventhor and Tar, you know, we were able to compete against both those guys. Um, yeah, it's it's just it's just go back to the same thing. He's got got to work hard at it. I suppose, guys, just to kind of summarize the the this era for for yourselves and and for us as well. Um, like I know we keep going on about how much we love it and things like that. Do you look back on it now? Um, you know, is it kind of more fondness or frustration at, at what may have been, you know, had, had things gone a little bit differently at the end of the thousand and one, considering you had the, the speed and whatever? And like, you know, is the era as good or what was the era as, as good as uh, as we keep thinking it, it was, I suppose, in, in your own opinion? It's difficult for, for us, um, or it's difficult for me, uh, because I was involved with it. Uh, and and I've sort of I look back at it now, and I, I I've always tended in my life to look forwards, not backwards. Um, and I I do look back at it with fondness, especially when I, I've, I've talked about I've talked about this period of my life more in the last <laughs> three months than I have honestly for twenty years. I can't believe how it's like much a promoter. <laughs> Unfortunately, as you probably worked out, I'm not quite as articulate and, and, and as well-spoken as some of you guys and, and Trevor, but you know, I, I was passionate about it. I still am passionate about it. And I've, since I retired, um, I moved away from it uh, completely uh, and, 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 and sort of fell out with it almost. But having got a family and I've got, I've now a 16 year old boy and a 14 year old girl, the 16 year old lad, Nathan, he is, he is, as I was back in the day when I was at that age, he's so passionate. And that's brought my level of interest back into the forefront. Um, and it's great to be able to tell stories um, because Nathan now is, is understanding. He, he just constantly on YouTube watching WRC events and, and, and this, that and the other. Uh, and I you know I'll chip in with the odd name drop of, <laughs> of, of, you know, for instance, sharing a helicopter, Burnsy on that test, we, he came across and right, next thing we're flying across South Wales to his test. And, and you know, there's stories like that. You think, Jesus, was I involved with that? And honestly, 20 years ago, it, it, it's 20 years ago now. And, and there's sometimes I think, was I actually involved? Because um, it's sort of a pinch myself moment um, most of the time. And, and the stories that, like I say name dropping and I talked to Nathan about it and he's like, well, no, you weren't. No, you weren't. Yeah, I was. And they'll look it up or whatever. And then 
you can see the wry smile on his face and oh yeah actually yeah my, my dad was quite famous back then but I don't you know I've never I don't feel famous I've never been one for feeling like you know I, I was better than anybody else I just I was one for getting my, my head down doing what the best I doing the best I could which is basically driving a car as fast as I could um as you can tell Trevor was the one the business behind it that he was the business mind and 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 the partnership worked brilliantly but um I look back with obviously fond memories as you would do because it, it was a great time um I, I, and frustration yeah there was frustration there but again I I have absolutely no regrets of how the things panned out um we had real cruel look but again I, I, I try to keep a positive frame of mind uh, in everything I do and, and, and that's how um, I continue to lead my life to the day. British Reading was on the crest of a wave really at that time you did a golden crop of drivers within that appeared about five years it was yourself Alistair McRae, Colin obviously, Richard, Martin Rowe, Mark Higgins, funnily enough Trevor you've sat with a good number of these drivers was there something in particular that you think it was at that time that why Ristrading was on, hit that kind of sweet spot where there was such a crop of drivers there and maybe what has changed since? Well, I still, I still think there, there always is a crop of British drivers. So I, I think it, it comes down to the personality of those drivers and you, the, the people you've talked about, like Mark Higgins, very good putting together deals, great personality, Alistair McRae, the McRae name, and also quite good at making deals. Uh, but again, maybe they were waiting for a manufacturer to come and get them, as opposed to us being a little bit more proactive and trying to find a different way to do it quicker, if you like, rather than hanging about. Um, because at the end of 2000, we had nothing in 2001. There was nothing going to happen because of foot and mouth. Um, and yeah... For me, being part of the F2 era in British rallying and towards the end of it, but even so, that was just a magic time. And it really resonates with a lot of people. Uh, I know certainly William uh, looks back on F2 days very fondly, but that's, that's great. And then to be part of, as you say, you know, one of the strong eras of World Rally uh, in the 2001 season, with all those manufacturers involved, and also... You know, being able to get to a point where you've got an offer from two different manufacturers to be part of the factory team. And at world level, doing a minimum of seven rounds, maybe 14 rallies, we were very close to it. But would my life be any different now, uh, 19 years later? I don't know. Uh, I know I've got a good life now, and I've never had any regrets in my life. Would you change it as you go back? Maybe we should have went to a Corolla. But again, we wouldn't have been able to do the same number of rallies, maybe. Uh, the investor, you know, something happened the first rally and the whole thing goes wrong and the investor's not happy because you don't have the best car. Who knows? You know, we don't, I'm very much like Neil. We don't look back. Uh, uh, we, we achieved a lot on the back of that. It's uh, helped me uh, get more opportunities. And, and for me, that was always a big thing in my rallying. Like, as I say, you'll find one trophy in this house and a couple of photographs, not much. What I loved about doing better in the sport was you met more interesting people. And the more interesting people you meet, the more opportunities you go. And those opportunities will take you to some exciting places or give you a real sense of achievement. And that's, I think, if you can, if you can get that as your goal and, and nail that part of it, then the rest just 
will come with it, you know, and you'll, you'll, have, a, you'll have a good time. You'll enjoy the process, as I say. Yeah. I, I think that's it. I just, that probably a fine point. It's probably the best point to finish it on in that, like, photographs and trophies are one thing, but you look back and look at the years you had. I mean, the stories, the memories, the kind of how we can inspire other generations. I mean, that's, you can't put any kind of price on that. That's, I, 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 we can sit around. I can spend the next five days sitting here and keeping you awake and asking you questions <laughs> and asking you stories. <laughs> yeah. He will too. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we all would as you, as you can probably tell like you know we, we just love this era and look it's it's great to hear um from from people that had the, that were there right in the thick of it right at the sharp end of the field and and, and trading punches with the, with the with the factory drivers from the time so um yeah i think we, we we'll wrap it up there um for, for the record we've got some fantastic stories there from from both neil and trevor um i know that that uh Neil, I believe you're you're working. Um, you got your own garage business now, from from what I gather. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, it's a family business that we've had uh, well for thirty odd years now. Um, yeah. Um, so we that keeps us very busy. Obviously, not as busy uh, at this time and the uh, of this period we're in uh, as it used as it normally is. But um, all it means is I can work on my little project Hyundai i20 that I bought, so I'm I'm happy enough doing that at the moment. I'm trying to I'm trying to recreate my own little F2 car at the moment, but uh, whether it happens, we'll see. But it'll be a good little thing anyway. We, we need to, we need to find the dealer. Who was the guy who used to sponsor us when we came across the Killarney? Den, was it Dennis and me? Dennis, Dennis Canaan Motors. There we go. Yeah, like a Jim McCracken, and Tony Kelly cars. We used Tony to get. Kelly, yeah. That was my job to try and get deals to get across. <laughs> you, we need to get a deal to get you across to Ireland in your two-liter kit car. Then. Yeah. Very good. We, we, we might have a contact with cars. We can uh, we can set you up with. <laughs> uh, and Trevor obviously has it. You know, the, the stage by stage brand is going from strength to strength, as you said, and you've recently started your, your own podcast. Yeah, what um, do you think? And no, it's cracking. It's cracking. Yeah, it's really, really good. Really, really good. Some great, um, great insight there. As you said, the, the first episode there was, um, Gordon Noble and Rory Kennedy was 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 really good. Um, guys with massive experience and some some really good teachings there for people, not just in rallying, but um, as you said, you know, any endeavor in, in life. So, no, I took um, huge learnings from it. Now myself, you know, and any navigator every day is a school day. Yeah. Good to know. So we have uh, Martin Rose next up. Uh, and like I said, it's another 90 minutes where we could have went on for three and a half hours. Uh, but again, Martin was really into some uh, very interesting stuff uh, as regards the psychology, the psych, psychology of the sport. And that comes out on And then we might have uh, one with a guy called Neil Weirden. That might be the third one if he's about Excellent, excellent. Now we look look forward to those. So, um, for anyone anyone that's that's listening, we'll we'll be sure to to tweet, retweet those on our social media. So you, I'm sure you've you've probably seen them already or listened to them already. But just in case you haven't, uh, be sure to give them a go. They're they're really good. So, um, yeah, that pretty much wraps us up for the chat with uh with Trevor and Neil. So guys, um, geez, thanks very much for your time. You've been incredibly generous to come on and 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 give us your your stories and. Uh, insight into what it was like at the time and your careers in general it's it's been fascinating um really really enjoyed the chat and we'd, we'd love to have you again uh, on again sometime in in the future but um no it's it's it's, it's been brilliant so from myself and and from the guys um thanks very much and we will talk to you soon
Thank you.